Let's uh, turn to Philippians chapter 2. We return again to our study in the book of Philippians, and we find ourselves in the final verses of chapter 2 at the tail end of a bit of a three-part series, mini-series, that we've entitled Three Gospel-Driven Ministers. We've been asking the question over these past few times that I've been preaching, what does it look like to lay down our lives in the joyful service of Christ and His people in a manner worthy of the great gospel by which we have been saved? And we've taken our answers to that question from the Apostle Paul himself in Philippians 2, verses 17 through 30. And in listening to his answers, we've been confronted with the immense importance of having a godly example to follow in our Christian lives. We've quoted him in our two previous studies in this miniseries, so we might as well go ahead and quote him one last time. But it was the, uh, the great Puritan Thomas Brooks who said, example is the most powerful rhetoric. In other words, you can lay out principles and you can inform men and women of their duty and you can use all the finest tools of rhetoric and oratory and persuasion, but the most powerful rhetoric, the most powerful form of persuasion and the most effective form of discipleship is that of example. You see, we know the principles laid out in Scripture well enough, but in order to get those principles from our heads to our hands... We seem to need to to see how those principles translate into action in the theater of a real, tangible, godly example lived out right in front of us. We benefit so much more when we move from tell me what to show me how. The writers of Scripture certainly understand that principle. In the fifth chapter of the book of James, for example, the Apostle James exhorts those whom he's writing to to endure hardship. And, and to endure suffering with patience. And in James 5.10, he says, As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. And you have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. And then again, just a few verses later, as he's exhorting them to diligent prayer, James says in 5.17, Elijah was a man with a a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it didn't rain on, on the earth for three years and six months. You see, James understands the power of example. He could have just said, well, be patient and endure hardship and be diligent in prayer. But he doesn't. Instead, he he calls to mind the patient endurance of the prophets and of Job. In the diligent prayer of Elijah, who he says was a man with a nature just like ours, a man like us, has done this faithfully. And so we know that it's not impossible. And the Apostle Paul understands that very same principle. He has been expounding to the Philippians what it means, according to chapter 1, verse 27, to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And in doing so, he lays upon them an extraordinarily high standards for the Christian life. We're called to be unified, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. We're called to exercise humility in all our dealings with one another, verses 3 and 4. We're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, verse 12. And we're to do all things without complaining at all, verse 14. And then in verse 15, we're called to be blameless in our external behavior, pure and unmixed in our internal character, 
and above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And now even we, the people of God, who know what it is to have the divine life implanted within us through the miracle of regeneration, even we who have a renewed nature, we hear that standard and we survey our own lives and we understand the weakness of our flesh and and living up to that standard seems impossible. And we can even begin to lose hope and become discouraged in our fight for holiness. But like James, Paul understands the power of example. He understands that simply announcing precepts and principles and duties can only go so far in helping the people of God live a life of holiness. And so after telling the Philippians what to do, Paul shows them how to do it. To show the people of God that this kind of life of obedient holiness is possible, he gives us three real-life flesh-and-blood examples of this gospel-driven life, three gospel-driven ministers, as we've said, who show us what it looks like for human beings with a nature like ours to put into practice these principles and precepts that he's been calling us to throughout this letter. We looked at that first example some weeks ago. It was Paul himself in verses 17 and 18. As Paul sits imprisoned in Rome, facing what may potentially be his own martyrdom, he says that if indeed his sacrificial ministry will end in his death in Rome, he won't be discouraged. He'll rejoice because his death in the service of Christ and for the sake of the Philippians' progress and holiness will be like the drink offering, he says, the fitting climax that completes the sacrificial offering of his ministry. And so we were instructed to follow his example, not in the sense of going out and seeking to try to be killed for the cause of Christ, but by dying to ourselves daily, each day joyfully pouring out our lives as a drink offering upon the altar of service to the people of God. Because we know, like Paul knew, that the greatest sacrifice for Christ brings the greatest fellowship with Christ. And then, last time, we observed the example of Timothy in verses 19 to 24. And we saw six characteristics of Timothy that were worthy of our imitation. And I won't rehearse those here. You can get the recording if you missed it or if you need to review. But suffice it to say that we observed in Timothy's example the great importance of life-on-life discipleship and of being the kind of selfless, single-mindedly devoted disciple that our leaders and our shepherds can depend on, not being a dabbler in Christianity, simply seeking to remain in my own little bubble in my comfort zone. But being the kind of man or woman who when a need in the congregation arises, your leaders can run their eyes across this room and see you and think, as Paul thought with Timothy, there is a man with the same soul as myself, with the same heart that beats with my heart. There's a woman who will be genuinely concerned for the spiritual well-being of these dear people. There's a family who doesn't merely look out for their own personal interests, but who seeks their joy in the interests of others. And so now this week, we come to the example of Epaphroditus in verses 25 to 30. And it's, it's very likely that of these three gospel-driven ministers, Epaphroditus proves to be the most precious example to us. You see, some of us have this mistaken idea, but we have the idea nonetheless that the kind of holy living the Apostle Paul is calling us to is only available to a special class of Christians. 
We have the example of Christ Himself in chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, but you say, hey, well, hey, He's the God-man. And so then you get a human example in Paul, but you say, well, Paul is probably the greatest and most extraordinary Christian who ever lived. I mean, he wrote half of the New Testament. He's my example. Can we bring it down a little closer to earth, please? And then he gives you the example of Timothy. You say, well, but Timothy, uh, he was discipled by Paul himself. He was a gifted young pastor. He's got books of the Bible named after him. But now here you have the example of Epaphroditus. And everything we know about this dear man, we know from these five verses. Save another brief reference to him in, later in chapter 4. But that's it. He's not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. We've got no evidence of his prominence, no evidence of anything noteworthy, noteworthy recognition outside of this passage. We don't even have any explicit identification or indication that he held the office of elder or deacon in the church. He was just a dedicated layman with a nature just like ours, and even with a resume just like ours. And so it just might be that we find particular help in this example of Epaphroditus, who seems a bit more apt to meet us where we're at. Just a little bit about Epaphroditus himself before we jump right in. As I said, he's mentioned only here in this passage and then once again in chapter 4, verse 18. The name Epaphroditus is derived from the Greek goddess Aphrodite, who is the Greek goddess of love and beauty. The Romans called her Venus. And so Epaphroditus means loved of or belonging to or favored by Aphrodite. And now if his parents had chosen this name for him, that means that he was a Gentile who was very likely converted out of pagan worship. And you'll understand why that's significant in just a bit. But whatever the specifics of his background, this dear brother had been saved and had become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and was a part of the church in Philippi. And we learn from this text that as the Philippians became aware of Paul's circumstances as he was imprisoned in Rome, they desired to send him someone from the congregation that he loved so dearly so that they could minister to whatever needs he might have and also to bring him a financial gift. And we learn from this text that Epaphroditus was the one chosen to accomplish that mission. And that tells you something about him. It tells you something about the Philippians' estimation of him. You don't just send just anyone on a 40 days journey with a financial gift to minister to the Apostle Paul. I think you'd want to send your top guy to go see Paul and to carry money over a 700-mile journey. You know, he'd obviously earned their trust and their confidence as a dedicated servant of Christ who sought the interests of others above his own. But now that Epaphroditus has arrived and delivered the gift to Paul and has served him in any number of ways, Paul's planning to send him back to Philippi with this letter in his hand. And verses 25 to 30 serve as Paul's commendation of Epaphroditus back to the Philippians. So let's read the text together, Philippians 2, verses 25 to 30. Paul says, But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him. And not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, 
and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. And the exposition of the text itself unfolds across three main units of thought. So in verse 25, we have Paul's description of Epaphroditus himself. And then in verses 26 to 28, Paul gives two categories of reasons why he's determined to send Epaphroditus back to Philippi. And then finally, in verses 29 to 30, Paul exhorts the Philippians to welcome him, to welcome him when he returns, to receive him as a brother with joy and in honor. So you have Paul's description, Paul's reasons, and Paul's exhortation all concerning Epaphroditus. So those are those the three units of thought that will kind of break down our time through this text this morning. And as we follow Paul's argument and we seek to expound the meaning of the text, we'll be able to observe some exemplary patterns of life, both in Epaphroditus and in the Apostle Paul again, and in that way also make some applications to our own lives about what it means to be a gospel-driven minister. Well, number one then, Paul's description of Epaphroditus, Paul's description of Epaphroditus. We have in this warm, loving commendation of Epaphroditus, Paul uses five terms to express his deep affection and high regard for this dear brother. And we see that these five terms come across two categories, three in relation to Paul and two in relation to the Philippians. He says, my brother, number one, fellow worker and fellow soldier, and then your messenger and minister to my need. So we have these five designations in these two categories. First, Paul calls Epaphroditus his brother. Now, if you look at that first designation through the eyes of someone, of a man or woman in the first century, especially of a Jewish person, familiar with the cultural sensitivities of the people of that time, even that is a bit shocking. And as we've mentioned already, it's plain from Epaphroditus' own name that he had been raised in paganism born to parents who had at least some regard to the Greek goddess Aphrodite. And of course, Paul spent his entire life as a young man as the most zealous of Pharisees, single-mindedly bent on keeping the Judaistic religion pure. If he had ever even had contact with a Gentile in his life as a Pharisee, if he called him anything at all, he would have called him a dog. And he probably would have spat at the mere mention of a pagan name like Epaphroditus. And yet, because of the marvelous work accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, because of the sovereign work of God and snatching Paul from the blindness of his Judaism and snatching Epaphroditus from the blindness of his paganism and opening both of their eyes to the ugliness of their sin and to the unspeakable glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, granting to them a common faith in, in this crucified and risen Lord, they're now brothers in Christ. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. And you'll notice that Paul doesn't just call him a brother, but my brother. Paul commends Epaphroditus to the Philippians, not merely as another believer, which would be enough, but he calls him my brother, indicating the kind of personal affection and friendship that develops as men serve the Lord Jesus Christ together. That's the second term that Paul uses, my fellow worker, where brother could have been confused maybe as simply a, another name for a fellow believer. Fellow worker could not be so confused. Paul reserved this term for those who had partnered with him in ministry, 
It's used of such eminent servants as Timothy himself, of Titus, of Philemon, of Priscilla and Aquila, of Mark and Aristarchus and Luke, and only a handful of others. Now, all of you who read your Bibles are familiar with those names, and the Philippians would have been familiar with those names as well. And so when Paul calls Epaphroditus his fellow worker, he's including him in his inner circle, as it were. He's regarding him as having a place on his ministry team, one who's labored alongside him, just as the Philippians had in the cause of the gospel. And finally, Epaphroditus is Paul's fellow soldier, a sharer in the conflicts and in the dangers and in the sufferings that inevitably befall a true servant of Christ who seeks to be faithful in his work. See, Epaphroditus hadn't only labored with Paul for the sake of the gospel, he also suffered with Paul side by side in the persecutions that result from that labor. And then Paul describes Epaphroditus in his relationship to the Philippians. Look again at verse 25. He is also your messenger and minister to my need. So as Paul plans to send Epaphroditus back to the church in Philippi, he calls their attention to the service that Epaphroditus had accomplished on their behalf. The Philippians themselves, remember, sent Epaphroditus to Rome to minister to Paul. And Paul refers to that in chapter 4, verse 18, when he, in the context of financial giving and receiving, he tells them, but I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I'm amply supplied having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. But Epaphroditus wasn't just a delivery boy. He wasn't only to bring a gift to Paul. He was also to be a gift to Paul. As Paul sat chained to a Roman soldier every waking moment of his life for those two years, awaiting the verdict from Nero that could come at any time, whether he would live or die, and having no one else of kindred spirit with him, he says, except for Timothy, the Philippians send Epaphroditus to minister to whatever needs he might have, to provide fellowship and encouragement, maybe to minister to the believers in Rome in ways that Paul couldn't because of his imprisonment. Uh, to continue preaching the gospel in that capital city of ancient paganism. Whatever Paul needed, Epaphroditus was there to serve. He was the Philippians' messenger and minister to Paul's need. And there's much that we can glean about the nature of the Christian life from that fivefold description of Epaphroditus. The first lesson we can learn is that the Christian life is a life of brotherhood. There are plenty of cultural groups and political organizations and clubs formed around this or that particular hobby, which draw people of, you know, diverse backgrounds and experiences and tastes together for a common cause. But no club or organization can take a racist religious zealot and a lawless pluralistic pagan and change their hearts so that from the very depths of their being, they regard one another as brothers as members of the same family. At the end of a club meeting, the members separate and return to their individual lives. But Christians are brothers and sisters. We are involved in one another's lives and on the level of our very own families. And in some cases, for some of you, even more than your own families. And, you know, families don't just go around. The proof of their being a family isn't that they call one another brother or sister or mother or father. 
I mean, you don't usually call your brother brother or your sister sister. So it's not in some sort of mechanical repetition of the words that we're brothers. It's proven the brotherly relationship is manifested in action. It's proven in ways, in the ways that a family cares for one another, right? By the way, the things we actually do for one another that are, is, that are born out of the concern that we have for one another. And that's the second lesson we can glean. The Christian life is a life of ministry. We are fellow workers, fellow laborers together in this work of serving the Lord and ministering to one another in our needs. It's often been said, and rightly, that Christianity is not a spectator sport. It's not a weekend hobby where we add a little Jesus to our comfortable and convenient lives as we pursue the American dream. It's a life of selfless sacrifice and labor on behalf of our brothers and sisters following in the path of the Lord Jesus who told us, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And, and I've told you before, it doesn't mean just die for them. It means live for them. It means to lay down your life every day for them. That brings us to a third lesson. The, the Christian life is a life of trouble. It's a life of trouble. We're fellow soldiers battling alongside one another in the spiritual army of our king. And we are at war with the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, Ephesians 6. And we've been told that all who live, desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, 2 Timothy 3.12. That through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And Paul has told us as recently as Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, that it has been granted to us for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. And so if any of you here have false notions, maybe these false notions of what the Christian life is, let them be corrected by Paul's description of this gospel-driven minister, Epaphroditus. Now, it's clear from Paul's description of Epaphroditus that he thought highly of this man. It's clear that he was useful to him in ministry and that he loved him with the depth of affection that's forged in the furnace of affliction for Christ's sake. And though the Philippians had sent Epaphroditus to stay with Paul and minister to his needs, Paul sends this dear brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier back to Philippi. And the obvious question is, well, if he means the world to you like this and he's so useful to you, why would you do that, Paul? And that brings us to the second unit of thought in this text. Number one, Paul's description of Epaphroditus. And now, number two, Paul's reasons for sending Epaphroditus. Paul's reasons for sending Epaphroditus. Look with me again at verse 25. Paul says, I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus. Now skip to verse 26. Because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him and not on him only but also on me so that I wouldn't have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I've sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again you may rejoice and I may be less, and the proper rendering there is, and I may be less sorrowful. So verses 26 to 28 give the reasons why Paul is sending Epaphroditus back to Philippi. And they break down into two broad categories of rationale. The first has to do with Epaphroditus' condition, and the second has to do with the expected outcomes of his return. So reasons, two categories of reasons, one having to do with Epaphroditus' condition, another having to do with the expected outcomes of his return to Philippi. 
So the apostle says first that he's going to send Epaphroditus to the Philippians because he was longing for you all. This is a word longing that speaks of intense yearning or sincere affection. It's the word that James used in chapter 4, verse 5, when we're told that the Spirit of God jealously yearns for the total allegiance of man's heart. Peter uses this word in 1 Peter 2, 2 to speak of a Christian's longing for the pure milk of the Word of God like a newborn baby longs for the milk of the nourishment of his mother's breast. In the same way that an infant child cries out from the pangs of hunger, Epaphroditus was longing for his dear friends at Philippi. And not only was he longing for them, he was also distressed over them. This is a word that refers to, to deep anguish, to anxiety, and to emotional turmoil. One commentator says it draws attention to the great mental and spiritual anguish he experienced. And it's a word used only two other times in the New Testament, and both times it's used to describe the experience of the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, where we're told that he began to be grieved and distressed and said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death, and he sweat as great drops of blood. Such was the condition of Epaphroditus over his longing for the Philippians. And some, at this point, they throw their hands up in disgust and they say, oh, Epaphroditus, what a girly man, you know, so overcome with emotion. Get a hold of yourself. But that misses the point entirely. You should hear what some of these commentators say about this. One asks, was Epaphroditus so emotionally immature that he was overwhelmed by a homesickness? Another asks, isn't such an emotional reaction strange for the behavior of a grown man? Some suppose, this is unbelievable, that he had a nervous disorder, that he was emotionally unstable, I'm quoting here, that he battled with depression, had a psychosomatic condition, and was even suicidal. But these men couldn't be more mistaken. Epaphroditus was not a man of a mass of unbridled emotions. This was Paul's fellow worker in the cause of the gospel, his fellow soldier in the spiritual battle of the Christian life. This was the man, as we'll learn later on in this passage, who risked his very life for the sake of the work of Christ. He wasn't any wimp. You say, well, then why was he so distressed? Look at verse 26. He was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. This wasn't any mere homesickness. This was no maudlin sentimentalism. Epaphroditus wasn't concerned at all about his own condition. He was distressed because the Philippians heard that he was sick. At some point, most likely on the 700-mile trip from Rome to Philippi, Epaphroditus fell ill, and he either sent back some traveling companions who had gone with him or maybe sent word with someone traveling in the opposite direction on the Via Ignatia to inform the Philippians of his condition. Well, there had been no word back to Philippi since Epaphroditus completed his journey to the Apostle Paul. But word had come from Philippi to Rome that the congregation was worried about their dear brother. And now that Epaphroditus is better and the Philippians don't know, Epaphroditus is worried that they're too worried when they don't need to be. And Paul's worried that Epaphroditus is worried. Everybody's worried. And so Paul says, you've got to go back and get this all cleared up. And so Paul doesn't chastise Epaphroditus for longing 
for his distress on behalf of the Philippians. Paul himself says that he longs for the Philippians, both in chapter 1, verse 8, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And then chapter 4, verse 1, my brethren whom I love, who I long to see. No, so far from rebuking Epaphroditus as if he was just overly emotional, it is in part on the very basis of these emotions that Paul, verse 25, thinks it necessary to send Epaphroditus back to Philippi. And then he elaborates a bit on Epaphroditus' condition in verse 27. So the Philippians had heard that he was sick, but Paul explains that he was so sick that he almost died. But, he informs the Philippians, God had mercy on him. God spared him. And he goes on in verse 27, not only did God have mercy on him, but God had mercy on me too. Because if Epaphroditus had died, I would have had sorrow upon sorrow. And here again, we gain precious insight into the heart of the Apostle Paul. One writer says, the Apostle's human sensitivity shines through clearly in these words. Later in the letter, he refers to the peace of God and the divine strength for all things. Yet he's no stoic or man of iron without human feelings. And I love the way John Calvin puts it. He says, Paul does not therefore make it his boast that he has the apathy of the Stoics as if he were a man of iron and exempt from human affections. What then, someone will say, where is that unconquerable magnanimity? Where is that indefatigable perseverance? I answer, says Calvin, that Christian patience differs widely from philosophical obstinacy and still more from the stubborn fierceness of the Stoics. And we see that even further as we read on in verse 28. Paul will send Epaphroditus back to Philippi, not only because of the condition of Epaphroditus, but also because of the expected outcomes of his return, of which there are two. Verse 28, therefore, I've sent him to you more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice. That's one. And it's just beautiful. Paul knows of the Philippians' distress. He knows that they're anxiously longing to wait to hear news about their, their dear messenger running back and forth to the mailbox, as it were, checking their voicemail and their email, as it were. Is there an update from Rome about Epaphroditus? Is Epaphroditus safe? Paul knows that in seeing him safe and sound back at home in Philippi and in good health, that would be the cause for the kind of celebration as receiving a son back from the dead. And as much as Paul dearly loved Epaphroditus and as much as he would have benefited from his service to him there in that Roman prison, he says he will be less sorrowful when he thinks of the joy and the gladness of both the Philippians and Epaphroditus. Martin Lloyd-Jones paraphrases it this way. He says, you know, says Paul in effect, I'm sending Epaphroditus back to you because I know that when he arrives back in Philippi and when you see him, you are all going to be so happy. And the fact that you're going to be so happy is going to make me less sorrowful. As I think about you and your happiness, when you look into the face of Epaphroditus, it will make me forget all my troubles and I shall rejoice as a man who rejoices in the Lord. What a beautiful picture of the selfless love and large-hearted magnanimity that Paul himself commended to the Philippians in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, when he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, 
But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Here was Paul modeling that very piece of instruction to the Philippians in the way that he dealt with Epaphroditus. He found his joy in the joy of his fellow believers. And he sets an example for us in that way. And I pray that this spirit inhabits us, Grace Life. I pray that we as a fellowship group and as members of Grace Church as a whole would be so marked by this spirit of affectionate tenderness that we would long and yearn for one another with that kind of intense affection, that we would have the kind of godly concern for one another that stirs us up to action when one of us is so much as unduly distressed, that we would dispense with all manner of stoicism in the Christian life, that we would repudiate the lie that the Christian, to be Christian is to feel and show no emotion. Emotions in and of themselves, dear friends, are not sinful. We can twist them and we can distort them and they can be employed by our flesh in sinful ways. But the Lord Jesus Christ has experienced the full range of human emotion, including anger, including mourning, including sorrow to the point of weeping, including pain, joy, gladness of heart. He's sanctified them all and you can feel all things to the glory of God. Now, I'm not saying that we ought to be saccharine. I'm not saying that we ought to be maudlin, driven by our feelings. But dear people, we cannot stifle the natural expression of human emotion and still be worshipers of God and lovers of His people. What's the first thing that we do when we begin to cry in front of someone? We get embarrassed and we apologize. I'm sorry, I'm getting emotional. I didn't know that that was, I can't, I'm sorry. If the Lord has worked in our lives in such a way to bring tears of joy, or if our hearts are broken over the rain that sin and death exercises over God's good creation, there's no need to be ashamed of those emotions. Those emotions are right at home among the people of God. And Paul and Epaphroditus show us that. If we stifle those, we've got no hope of experiencing the same depth of fellowship that Paul and Epaphroditus and the Philippians experienced with one another. They longed for one another. They were distressed for one another. They were distressed over another, one another's distress, so much that it drove Epaphroditus to undertake a 700-mile journey across land and sea, across a country and a half, without the benefit of an automobile or a train or an airplane, while sick to the point of death, in order to minister to the body of Christ on behalf of the body of Christ. Oh, what our affections can accomplish when they're submitted to the Word of God and to the Lordship of Christ. Well, we've observed then Paul's description of Epaphroditus in verse 25. And just now in verses 26 to 28, Paul's reasons for sending Epaphroditus back to Philippi. And we come then to the third unit of thought in this text, Paul's exhortation concerning the reception of Epaphroditus. I'll say that again. Paul's exhortation concerning the reception of Epaphroditus. So look at verses 29 and 30. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. 
the Philippians are to receive Epaphroditus, Paul says. They're to give him an enduring welcome as a fellow member of the community of the saints in Philippi. This is the the same word that the Pharisees used to level an accusation against the Lord Jesus in Luke 15, verse 2, where it says, they began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. This man welcomes and enters into an intimate interpersonal relationship with sinners. And Paul uses this word here. You are to receive Epaphroditus. You are to welcome him and re-enter into that intimate fellowship with him that you had previously. And how? In what manner are they to receive him? Verse 29. Receive him then in the Lord. In the Lord. Receive him as is befitting of one with a reception that befits one who is united to Christ just as you are. Receive him in the full consciousness of the glorious reality that you share with this dear brother in the common bond of of the spiritual union to the Lord Jesus Christ. Another way of saying this would be receive him back as a member in good standing of the church of Philippi. And how is that to be done? How is that reception in the Lord to be done? Look again. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, with all joy. This is not to be a begrudging reception. This is not to be a hesitant, resentful reception like, all right, well, if I have to, we can come back. Paul said so, so okay. They're to receive Epaphroditus with fullness of joy, with favorable and glad acceptance. And Paul goes on. They're not merely to receive him in the Lord with all joy. Paul also commands them, verse 29, to hold men like him in high regard. They're to honor him as one to whom honor is due, Romans 13, 7. As one writer put it, the people of God are to give men like Epaphroditus a place in your estimation, affection and attitude commensurate with their proven worth and stature. I'm going to say that part again. I like that definition. Give him and men like him a place in your estimation, affection and attitude commensurate with their proven worth and stature. And what's Epaphroditus' proven worth and stature? What's the reason that Paul gives for this directive? Verse 30, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. And we've said it before, Epaphroditus is carrying out this mission to the Philippians, traveling that 40 days and 700-mile journey from, on foot from Philippi to Rome, and somewhere along the way, he became sick. And his sickness was of such severity that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says he came close to death. Literally, he became a near neighbor to death. In our English idiom, we would say he, be, he came to death's door. But even though he was sick to the point of death, he didn't abandon his mission in the cause of Christ. He didn't turn around and go back to Philippi. He didn't even stop somewhere along the way to rest and recover, figure, hey, I'll get my second win, be better, and then I'll be able to go in greater strength. No. And he was thinking maybe if he did that, perhaps by that time, by the time he would have gotten to Paul, Nero may have rendered his judgment for execution, and by that time it may have been too late. No. With a sort of Holy recklessness. Epaphroditus risked his life to complete what was deficient in the Philippian service to him. 
Now, that doesn't imply anything negative on the Philippians' part. The entire congregation would have loved to be there with him in that prison cell in Rome. They would have loved to minister to the apostles' needs while he was in prison, awaiting his trial. But, of course, the distance separated them. And so Paul is just saying, don't think that because I've sent Epaphroditus back to you, that he somehow failed in his mission. Not at all. He's completed the ministry of service, he says. He's completed the ministry of service that you all would have done yourselves but couldn't because of the distance that separates us. And not only has he completed the service, but he's risked his very life to do it and came close to death in carrying out the work of Christ. And so you should receive him in the Lord with all joy and hold all those who follow his example in high regard. Epaphroditus was following in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus himself. Chapter 2, verse 8 in Philippians, Paul tells us that Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And in the same manner, with total disregard for his own welfare, Epaphroditus put his life on the line for the work of Christ. There was, a, like I said, a holy recklessness about him. He could say with Paul in chapter 2, verse 17, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice. My life couldn't be better spent. He could say with Paul again in Acts 20, 24, but I do not consider my life of any, on any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus. Epaphroditus, he had learned what Paul meant. When Paul said to live is Christ and to die is gain, he knew what it was to say, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, even health, even life itself, if necessary, so that I may gain Christ. And Grace Life, I want to know if that spirit of holy recklessness dwells in you. Is there a willingness, is there even an eagerness in your own soul to risk your life, if necessary, for the work that Christ has called you to do, to lay down your life for the progress and joy of the faith of your fellow believers, to be poured out like a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of the faith of your brothers and sisters? Are you willing to die daily even in the little ways, even in the ordinary, non-romanticized, behind-the-scenes ways that nobody but the Lord will see. Your life, dear friends, your life is given to you by God for you to live it in such a way that it is plain to everyone who sees you that your life is not what you treasure most deeply, but that Christ is. Your life is given to you, not so that you can slavishly cling to it at all costs and gratify the desires of your flesh with it. Your life is given to you so that you can lay it down in such a way that makes it plain to the world that Christ is more satisfying than all that life can offer and all that death can take. That's what it means to live as Christ and to die as gain. And that's why life is given to you. And so if you have to lay it down for that reason, rejoice. That's why you have it. Don't waste your life by pretending it's your own, by acting as if you've been given it to treasure it and cling to it at all costs. Surrender it. It's why you have it. It's why you've been given it. And if you're here with us this morning and you're not a Christian, I tell you on 
all the authority of God's word itself that you are wasting your life. It's a privilege for me to be able to show you from this text a small part of what life is really about. But if you're still clinging to your sin, if you have not surrendered every aspect of your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ and to the absolute authority of God's word, you are wasting your life. You say, how, how dare you tell me that? How dare you say such a thing to me? You don't know me. I know the one who knows you. And he's told, spoken clearly what life is and what it's not. And so my exhortation to you, dear friend, is not that you should lay down your life in service to others. If you're outside of Christ this morning and you're a stranger to God's grace and forgiveness, exhorting you to selflessness and to sacrificial service after the pattern of Epaphroditus and Timothy and Paul and Christ himself, all of that would only perpetuate the lie in your own mind that your good works can do something, anything, to commend you to this holy God. Now, before you would start down the path of sacrificial service to Christ and to his church, you need to become part of the church. You need to come to Christ and be joined to his body. And that requires that you own the fact that you're a sinner, that you've broken God's law, that you've fallen short of that glorious moral standard of perfect holiness, of perfection. No matter who you are, no matter where you've come from, no matter what you've done in your life, you stand guilty before a holy God. And because God is a God of unwavering justice, because he's a good God, your penalty has to be paid. But because you're so sinful, because we all are so sinful, there is absolutely nothing that you or I or anybody else can do about it to pay this penalty that you owe. But it was precisely for this reason that God demonstrated his love for the world by sending his son to the earth to add to his divine, eternal divine nature, to add the, the weakness and the frailty of a human nature to it. And so Jesus of Nazareth was born as the God-man, fully God and fully man, 100% God, 100% man. And throughout the entirety of his life, he lived perfectly before the holy standard of the Father. He never sinned in any of the ways that you and I have. He lived the life that you were commanded to live, but you couldn't live, that you failed to live. And, he, and in the fullness of time, he died on the cross to pay the penalty that you couldn't pay. And it was a death penalty, not only a physical death, because you didn't deserve only physical death. It was a death penalty of spiritual death, because on that cross, he absorbed the full measure of the wrath of his father, wrath that you deserved and wrath that he never deserved. And on the third day, he rose from that grave where they laid him and he showed that the father was satisfied with his sacrifice and that he was the victor and conqueror over death. And the promise to you is that if you turn from your sin and your self-righteousness, if you stop trying to earn your acceptance with God based on what you've done and you put your faith entirely in his death to pay sin's penalty and your faith entirely in his life to provide your righteousness before God, his death will be your death and his life will be your life and you will finally know the God that created you. How can you turn that down? What are you living for that is better than that? What are you dying for that is worth more than knowing God? I submit that there's nothing. I declare to you that there is nothing. Come to Christ. 
And dear friends who've come to Christ and who've tasted the sufficiency of the forgiveness of sins and the provision of perfect righteousness, heed the examples of these three gospel-driven ministers, of Paul, of Timothy, and Epaphroditus, and lay down the life that has been purchased for you, given to you, that you might surrender it for the sake of Christ. Pray with me. Oh, Lord, we, we ask you to fulfill these exhortations. We exhort the people of God and we ask the, the God of the people to supply the grace to bring these, these exhortations to fruition. Would you honor yourself in your church by making us the kind of sanctified people who, who love you and who, out of a desire to magnify the sufficiency and satisfaction of Christ, lay our lives down in service and joyful service to our, our brothers and sisters. Whatever the need, not too big, not too small, not too inconvenient, may we be ready to lay our lives down and, if necessary, to risk our very lives in the cause of Christ. If you should bring that across our path in these coming years and decades in this country and in other countries, we pray for the, the resolve, the, the steel in our spines to stand because Christ is worthy, because he is satisfying, because your word is true, because we love you. We pray that you'd be honored in your church. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved.